Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Our title is The Joy of Sacrifice. The Joy of Sacrifice. The world has no frame of reference for the sermon title, The Joy of Sacrifice. No frame of reference for what we're talking about today, but it's a glorious truth. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we need your help. We need wisdom and guidance. Holy Spirit, thank you for leading us. And already, just as we're talking back and forth, being encouraged by the return of Christ, Holy Spirit, that's what you do. Is you point our you point our minds and you point our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thinking about Jesus and, and longing for his return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, come quickly. We long for that. We don't know when. But we're excited, and we thank you that you've promised to do that. As surely as you came for your people, as surely as you will come once again. Holy Spirit, lead me, help me to be faithful to the word that you you wrote, and I trust you're going to do that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, what difference does the Holy Spirit of God make within a group of people? What is the difference practically, between a group of Christians and a group of non-Christians in the way they conduct themselves. Now, we can paint in some really, really broad strokes here, and you can find exceptions to these rules. For instance, you can find a non-Christian who lives a very moral life. A non-Christian who will give their very shirt off their back to a person in need, who will drop everything to come to your aid, you can find people like that. In fact, it's quite easy to find people like that. Especially good old boys. What do you call a good old girl? Good old boy? Good old girl? It's kind of a condescending thing to say. Well, that's a great good old girl, you know. And you can find a Christian with ethical issues. They're out there. You can find a Christian with ethical issues. It's easy to find. But broad strokes, painting broad strokes here, what kind of a difference should there be between a Christian community and a non-Christian community, a Christian community and the world? And so we're going to look at this today, and I think within our community, within Christian churches throughout all the land, you're going to see that there is a different way of life from that of the world. Just look at the church, not just our church, the church, and just go from town to town, and if you're able to take a survey of how they live their lives compared to the way the world lives their lives, there should be something different there. There should be a, a peculiar nature to it. There should be something quite radically different than the way the world is. I think if there's nothing different at all, and if it looks the exact same, then we'd have to say that something's profoundly wrong. If there's not a difference at all between how a Christian and non-Christian conducts themselves, then we should be scratching our heads a little bit and, and wondering, now, why is that? There should be... A profound difference. So God is at work in the people of God. The Holy Spirit of God dwells us. God is at work in us. We make it our aim in life to please God, not to please man. So there should be this profound difference. That's what we're going to look at today. That there is, in fact, a difference within the people of God compared to the world. We're going to see this in Philippi, and we're going to see this in our church, and we're going to see this in the church. Look at verse 12. In chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, 
As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in, who works in you, but the will and work for His good pleasure. First thing I want to, want to notice this morning is that the church in Philippi had a track record of obedience. They were a very compliant, very obedient church. This is a very different church than the church of, the church of Corinth. And if the church of Corinth and the church of Philippi were two different children, the church of Corinth is the rebel. He's the younger brother. He's the one going out and just the rebel rouser, the one that's always complaining, reveling, uh, acting a fool. And the church of Philippi, they're the rule-following child who always does everything right, who always acts politely. They're the two people who eat a meal, and the one child has the completely clean face. The, the table is perfectly neat, and if the noodle falls off the plate, it's a crisis. They put the noodle back on the plate. And then the church of Corinth is kind of the one who just takes the food, throws it everywhere, and smacks the spoon out of your hand. Philippi has a track record of obedience. And it's not just fake obedience. It's not just external conformity to a, group of, uh, to a list of rules or something like that. They are a really responsive group. When they hear the word of God, they respond to the word of God in a humble manner. Paul knew that this letter would land on a group of people who wanted to obey. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. This is their track record. This is their reputation. The church of Philippi, they're just an obedient bunch. They love the Lord. They want to obey the Lord. Of course, they've got those issues. They're dealing with some unity issues. There's some ladies in the church that are backbiting and fighting. And there's some things that need to be hammered out and, and worked out, of course. But their track record is one of obedience. They're an obedient church. They're that kind of group. It's a hallmark of the Christian faith. Should be a hallmark of the Christian faith. Quick obedience. Christians should be doing what God says to do. It's a pretty, pretty uh, clear, pretty... Um, it's just Christians should be obeying God. And that's what the church of Philippi was doing. They were quick to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Swift and joyful obedience is the way of the Christian. It should be. Swift and joyful obedience. Now this is a massive difference compared with how the world functions and operates. The word obedience. Think about the word obedience. Does anybody just walk around thinking about how much they love the word obedience? Well, in the world, obedience is definitely not a good word. Obey? Are you kidding me? I obey myself, what I think, what I know, and what I feel in this very moment. Christians, on the other hand, have a standard, a law, a word that they bend their will to through the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christians don't determine our own lives. We submit our lives to another. We get our marching orders from a king. And that king is not from the inside, it's from the outside. It's Jesus. And the world will have none of that. None of that. Already, just from out of the gate here, you see the difference between the world and the Christian community. The Christian community comes and says, I'm here to take orders, King Jesus. What do you have for me? What do you have in the Word today? We're all going to open our Bibles in the mornings, or at our lunchtime, or in the evenings, whatever it is that you spend, spend time with the Lord. You open your Bible, and you're looking for what Christ has done, and you're looking for what you're called to do from the God of the universe. And the response should be, yep, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey. Whatever the Lord has me to do, that's what I want to do. The world will have none of that. That alone marks us as a different people from the people of the world. We take our marching orders from another. We don't determine our marching orders. We don't determine our lives. We submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't make up our truth. We don't say, I live by my truth. We don't live by our truth. 
we live by the truth. That's a massive, monumental, cataclysmic difference in the way we conduct ourselves. And Paul is confident that if he is there, or if he never gets there, if he's away, he's confident that they're going to obey. He's confident that this letter is going to show up in this region, and they're going to open it on the Lord's Day gathering, and they're going to read from it, and, and the people there are going to say, thus saith the Lord. When God says goes, we're going to obey. And we're going to fail, we're going to look to Jesus, and we're going to pick our head up, and we're going to obey tomorrow. And when we fail, we're going to look to Christ and trust Him for His grace. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to march on and obey. He's confident that. He tells in verse 12b that they have some work to do. Verse 12b. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both the will and the work for His good pleasure. Now there's been a lot of needless ink spilled over this verse through the ages. Work out your salvation with fear and and trembling. Many have used this verse to build a defense for works-based righteousness, or somehow a merit-based system with God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the idea is, with that verse isolated, the second half of that verse, is that we need to be fearful of God, we need to tremble before Him, and we need to work out, we need to merit the salvation that God is going to give. But we need to sum that real quick because that is a erroneous way to look at the passage. Uh, we do not need to look at the passage and talk about the power of human will or shake us by the shoulders and say, get in line, you need to be afraid, you need to run from your disobedience, run to obedience. That's not what this verse is talking about. If we can settle it real quick and we can answer what it's not saying. I had a previous pastor who who did this and I thought it was really helpful. If you can determine first what it's not saying, that's one thing, but then you need to go beyond that. You don't need to just say what a verse doesn't say. You need to say what a verse does say. So first, let's look at what it doesn't say. Verse 13 says, It's God who works in you, both the will and the work for His good pleasure. It's God who is at work in you, both the will and the work in His good pleasure. So definitively, verse 12 Verse 13 says that. Verse 12b is not a verse about works-based salvation or the power of the human will. It's definitively not. Because verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you. So who works in you? You are God. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So when your will rises up and wants to obey and wants to work for God's glory and do something in obedience, when that will rises up and that work is conducted, who's doing that willing and working? For it is God who's at work and you can do that. So it's definitively, verse 12 is definitively not about you doing something in the absence of God doing something. It's not an independent verse that you can take in isolation. However, it does say something. So what is it about? And very clearly, it's, it's simply about obedience. So when you work out physically, when you go to the gym, let's imagine we're going to the gym, unless you're Garrett Gross. Or Brandon Healy. Or other gym rats that are here. Uh, January's coming. <laughs> when you go to work out, you're working out, like in the gym, you're working out and building muscles. You're building your body strong. 
We can look at it like that. Work out your salvation. So work it out. Okay? Work out. Become strong. Don't just get your salvation, put it in your pocket, front pocket or back pocket, and leave it there. Work it out. Or you can look at it like this. Work out the salvation that you have been given by God from the inside out. Work it from the inside out. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. This passage has everything to do with obedience. Salvation should not be invisible. There should be a difference between the saved man or woman than the unsaved man or woman externally. It should be working itself out in the way you conduct yourself ethically, in the way you live your life at work, in the way you live and exist in your family. We are to work out that salvation that God has given us. It should never be invisible. It should always be externalized. We sang about this when we were a kid. Hide it under a bushel. No. no. And it's funny, Jordan and I look back at this. This is one of the disagreements we had. I mean, we get really, I mean, it's some hot contention over stuff. And she thought it was hide it under a bush. Oh, no. <laughs> and I went along with that. I was like, yeah, I've been singing it wrong all these years. I've been saying bushel. And we were like making fun of ourselves. Like, what's a bushel? Hide it under a bushel. And then for two years, we walked in our darkness and naivete and found out after looking at the lyrics, it really is bushel. And then we got to thinking, how do you hide a light under a bush? Wouldn't the bush just burn up? You can't hide a light under a bush. And then, anyway, so it's bushel, like a bushel basket. Hide, a light, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Why? Because you have something great inside of you. God's going to work in you. The Spirit of God lives in you. You're not going to leave it on the inside. It's going to be externalized. The, the grace of God has wheels to it. It comes out of your fingertips. It comes out of your mouth. It comes out of your heart. It comes out of your very life. And when you meet Jesus, it should change everything about you. It should change how you work. It should change how you get up in the morning or change how you go to bed at night. It should change how you eat your food because you're eating with a newfound thankfulness. God didn't have to give me this. And he gave it to me. God didn't have to make it taste good. And it tastes good. I mean, have you had pecan pie? Work out your salvation. It should be externalized. And when we eat that food or taste that flavor, we say, God, thank you. Thank you for that. You didn't have to do that. It could be bland and boring. You let us see color. You let us see the spring to summer to fall to winter. Every year it comes and every year it goes and it just keeps going. God, you're so kind. Oh my gosh. Is not God merciful? So we're not going to hide it under a bushel. Oh no. We're going to let it shine. Andy, can you play that for us when we come up here in the Christianity is to be brought with us wherever we go. Because the Holy Spirit of God is with us. There's this collision that happens. The kingdom of God moves forward wherever we go. And we collide with the world. It doesn't coddle the world. Toby Sumter said the gospel of Jesus collides with the world. It does not coddle the world. And it changes and it transforms people, cities, communities, and the world. It's a serious matter. And we are to do this with fear and trembling. Though the spirit of trembling is important. Look at it. It's right there. I want you to see it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And some of the reason that this has been a confusing verse for some is because these words, fear and trembling. Now, here's what we've got to know. that This fear and trembling is not a fear of trembling of damnation from our Heavenly Father. We are not to be fearful and trembling in light of the possibility of us one day being condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's the deal. Disobedience disobedience to God and a life of sin 
It is always destructive. It's always destructive. Sin is never not destructive. This is seen in all of our lives. When we, are, we recognize patterns of sin in our lives, it doesn't bring good fruit. It brings bad fruit. It brings shame. It brings a wake of damage behind us. Sin is always destructive. And here's the deal. We should always be afraid. I mean, absolutely in terror of what our life could look like if we just walked in sin and rebellion. What would the next year of your life look like if you just went on sinning and disobeying and didn't want to obey the God of the universe and just went and lived your own life? Imagine the damage. Just, I mean, one year. What would happen? Or how different your life could look? We can do a lot of damage real quick with sin and disobedience. Sin is always destructive. It always brings pain. It always brings hurt. So this fear and trembling is not fear and trembling of damnation from our Father. It's, it's fear and trembling of what can happen if I just walk and live in a life of sin and rebellion. Christians should fear and tremble at the thought of keeping our salvation within us and not working it outside of us. Don't be the man or woman who just says, I'm saved, lives the rest of your life confident that I'm saved, but walking in sin and rebellion for decade after decade. We should be terrified of the thought. We want the salvation that God has given us to be worked outside of us. Oh no, we don't want that at all. We don't want to keep it inside. We want to work it out. Work that salvation out with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in us. We already looked at it. Look at it again. Verse 13. For it is God who has worked within you, both the will and to work for His good pleasure. This is one of the greatest two, greatest two verses that can be put together in all the Bible. Because we see that there is action, there is this desire that I'm going to obey, I'm going to work this salvation out from the inside out. But then this great hope and confidence that it's God who is at work within you. As you are working out your salvation, we need to know, the church and I need to know, and we need to know that that is actually God at work in you. That desire you have to grow in Christ, or to obey, or to follow hard after Him, or to do big things for God, to love your family well, which is a great big thing for God, by the way, or to humbly love God and others, to be a man of integrity, to not be a man who just says one thing and does another, to be a kind of woman that loves God's Word, and wants to obey. And she doesn't just say one thing and do another. She is a woman of her word. To be that kind of person who externalizes their walk with the Lord, externalizes the salvation and the grace that's been given. When you have those desires, know that that desire to obey, to love Him, to pursue Him, that's God at work in you. That's not you independent from God. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit of God working inside of you. That work that you think, have a tendency to think is your own. That pursuit of God that you have a tendency to think is your own. That desire for obedience. That pursuit of wisdom and making godly choices. That is God working in you. It's an amazing thing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, 28, 29. It's a really good parallel passage. And, and Paul is speaking. And he's talking about 
the toil that he has to use and express in his love for the churches. And here's what he says. Him we proclaim, speaking of Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. It's perfect. Um, complimentary passage to this text today. The perfect parallel passage. For this I toil. Parallels with you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says struggling with all, not my energy, not that I powerfully work within me, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. In my struggle, in my toil, in my, my even anxiety, God is at work in me to will and to work for His good pleasure. Even our pursuit of God after we become Christians is God at work inside of us. It's an amazing thing. Why are we here this morning? Why do we pray? Why do we continue to pray even in moments we don't know what to pray for? Like today. Situation that's going on with Jake and with uh, Nick and their niece. Why do we continue to pray? Um, why do we keep reading our Bibles? You know that we read books throughout the year. We, read, we typically read one book and put it down, and we pick up another book and put it down. But why do we keep coming back to it? And we keep coming back to it. And we keep coming back to it over and over. Week after week, year after year, the rest of our lives. There's not going to be a year in your life as a Christian where you're like, well, I'm done with the Bible. I mean, I've read it multiple times. I mean, done with it. We keep coming back. Because we long to hear the voice of the shepherd. We long to hear the voice of the shepherd. Why do you want to help your neighbor out when your neighbor is in need? Why do you want to grow in humility? Why do you love Jesus? Why do you desire wisdom to make godly and right choices? It's because God is at work in you. That's why. And there's so many things we miss, so many things to be grateful for in our life that we miss because we just stop and think. And we just stop and think, okay, is that me or is that God at work in me? Talk about assurance that can come to us every time we crack open our Bible or even we wrestle through reading the passage and think, why is it such a struggle for me to read the Bible today? Or why is it so hard for me to pray? I mean, I want to pray. And yet it's a struggle for me to pray today. God is at work in you. Both the will and the work for His good pleasure. The fact that there's any desire at all to pray to God is evidence that God is at work in you. God is at work. So we want to obey. We want to externalize all that He's doing inside of us. We don't want to hide it under a bushel or a bush. So Paul's going to give us some examples, some few examples of some things to do. The church of Philippi. Here's some examples of some things to do. And this is perpetual. It's just from generation to generation, from church to church, all over the world. Even things for, for us to do as well. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here's a few things to do. Just some good work. Externalize what God is doing inside of you. Don't hide it. Externalize. Number one, don't grumble. So don't grumble. 
If you want to be shining lights to the world, don't be a grumbling people. You know, the people of God struggle with this in the Old Testament. And like every single person in the room has felt the, the tension or the pull or even has struggled before with grumbling. Uh, when things don't go your way in the world or in your life or in your home. Kidding me? You don't have no. Work my cereals out. I really love just bunch of cereal. It's not called this bunch of more. It's called like that. Honey bunch of oats. Granola. Honey roasted. Oh, it's good. Very good. And I crush it. I'm just saying I eat it like one day. I it. And, uh, and there's, there's things in life that you look, you look at. Just small things. Pretty big things. Small things. Just the default is just a grumble. Paul's like, hey, don't, don't grumble in anything. Just don't, don't be a grumbly person. Don't be a grouch. Don't be a grumbler. Just quit grumbling. Don't grumble. Don't complain to God. And then don't dispute. Don't argue with God, for goodness sake. Now, when I first read this, I read it incorrectly, and I was thinking about being a disputing person within the world. So what is it talking about? It's talking about not arguing with God. Don't grumble to God. Don't complain to God. How simple is that? Instead of arguing with God, instead of grumbling to God, instead of complaining or fighting with God, quit. Avoid those two things. Don't do that. Instead, thank God. Instead of grumbling to God, and instead of arguing with God, obey Him. Swift obedience. Quick obedience. Joyful obedience. Okay, God, whatever you say, just, I mean, plant your flag in the ground and just say, I obey God. I'm not going to fight with him, grumble or complain to him. I'm just going to obey him. What he calls me to do, I will do. And he says, above all, and all you do, avoid those two things. Those two things cover so much ground. Think about all of your life right now that you can grumble about to God or complain or argue with him about. And if you just, it covers a lot of ground. Okay, I'm not going to grumble anymore, and I'm not going to argue with him anymore. I'm not going to complain to him anymore. I'm not going to dispute with him anymore. You can like, it's going to look a lot different. It's just going to look a lot different. There's a lot of people who waste a lot of life grumbling and complaining and arguing with God. Instead, we should obey. Now, avoidance of those things will make you stand out in society. In the middle of this crooked and twisted generation, which can be said about every generation, from the generation that was written until today, there's a group of people who will stand out as blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. There will be a difference between how Christians conduct themselves and how the world conducts themselves. Now this week I posted a funny meme. I thought it was funny anyways. Again, one of the great things about 2020 has been the memes. The meme game has just been on point for 2020. And uh, earlier, I was, I was thinking about you know the Buzz Lightyear thing from Toy Story, where Buzz gets the you know Woody hits the button and it like opens up, and you realize that the air is not you realize that the air is not toxic. And uh, I mean that's I can breathe. I mean it's just like 2020 right there. I mean like you can breathe, folks. Seriously. Um, but this meme was a uh, group of people, or two two people, and they had like face, they had like full body suits on, okay. And above it, it said normal people, and then below it, there was a group of people like smiling wearing Christmas sweaters around a table eating dinner, and above them it said crazy conspiracy theorists or something like that. It's so, like the normal people, and then the conspiracy theorists. Like, hey, okay. 
If you were to shine like that in the world, you want to stand out, don't grumble to God, don't argue with Him, and then throughout the world just be a different person, it externalized God's grace that came inside of you and now is coming out of your life, your mouth, your heart, your fingertips, and all of your life. And you're going to shine out in a twisted and crooked generation. Now that twisted and crooked generation might not like what they see, but they will see it. If you are seen in the world as somebody who takes marching orders, not from the media, not from Hollywood, not from the wave of popular opinion. I mean, you're like crazy countercultural today if you just love your family well, work hard, and just obey God in His Word. Like that's, I heard another pastor say, that's like the most punk rock thing you can do. Just, just obey God. That's the contrast. Don't grumble to God. Don't argue with God. Instead, Swift obedience, joyful obedience. Okay, God, what you say goes. You get up and you read your Bible and your, your study, and the Holy Spirit's like right there, right there. You've been struggling with that. There's grace and mercy for you. Now, change. We say, okay, all right, God, I'm going to change. I'm going to change by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, something that's so crucial that Paul takes us back to over and over again. Look, look at this. Among you, you will all shine out as lights to the world, calling fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run my race or run in vain and labor in vain, and hold fast to the word of life. As they do this, as they stop grumbling, as they stop complaining or disputing with God, Paul wants them to hold fast to the word of life, hold fast to the truth that you are alive in Christ. Hold fast to the word of life. And the word of life is always connected. Paul doesn't know about a word of life that's not connected to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget that you have life in Christ. Whatever you do in this pursuit of God, don't forget that you're alive in Christ. Hold fast. Grab hold. Don't lose that. Practical Christianity must hold fast to Christ. We look to Christ. We run to Him. We trust Him. We know that He has got us more than we have Him. That He's not going anywhere. We hold fast to the word of life, or we could become proud legalists. And we can live differently than the world, so the world or others will think much of us. We have to hold fast to the word of life, so we understand what in the world we're trying to do when we obey. If we don't hold fast to the word of life, we're going to try to obey to get life. Not obey because we have life. We hold fast to the word of life. We hold, hold fast because for Paul, if this church loses grasp of the word of life, he said that he will feel as if he ran his race with them in vain. If they just obey, if they just stop grumbling, but if they lose fast, if they, if they lose their grip of holding fast to the word of life, Paul is going to feel as if he has ran his race with them in vain. And he doesn't want to run his race in vain. He wants them to hold fast to the word of life. That's why one of the reasons he wrote this letter, what he always goes back to is, hold, look, look to Christ. Christ is enough. Come to him. There's grace, there's mercy, there's help in your time of need. Christ is enough. And as you stop grumbling, as you stop disputing with God, don't forget to hold fast to Christ. 
He has the words of life. And one day, on the day of Christ's return, when he returns, or when Paul meets him, the apostle is going to stand before God and he wants to be proud that he did not run his race in vain. Now this is crucial that we understand this. Now, Paul has already established the fact that any work that we do is work that God is doing through us. Because when we think about the word pride, Paul being proud of his work before the Lord, we need to think through this rightly. Or we'll think that pride is automatically a virtue. It is not. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I want to say this carefully. Almost all of pride is evil, wicked, twisted, and the root of all sin. But there is one sliver of pride that Paul is appealing to here that is not evil or wicked. When we have a foundation that the work that we're doing is being done by the Heavenly Father through us, God causing us to will to work for His good pleasure, we can be proud of the work because we know who's behind it. We can look at what we've done and know that this was the work of the Lord and say, God, by Your grace, I'm proud of that. I don't know all the ins and outs of that. But apparently there's a way for it to be holy. To look at the work that's happened through your hands and to recognize God's activity to God, I'm proud of that. I'm thankful for all that you accomplished. I don't want to waste the work of my hands. I don't want to live my life and the end of my life look back and say, I wasted it. I didn't do what God called me to do. I spent too much time grumbling and complaining. I want to see what God has done and say, God, I'm proud of that. Proud of what you accomplished through me. Not a simple pride, but in a holy way, in a holy manner. Verse 17, he's going to get down into the nitty gritty details again. Paul's so good at that. Declaring great truths to us and then putting wheels to it. Like helping us practically work this stuff out. Life with stop grumbling and stop disputing. Look at verse 17. Uh, we get to the sermon title this morning. The joy of sacrifice. The joy of sacrifice. Look at verse 17. Even as I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice, rejoice with me. Paul says that he is being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So let's work through this. Paul is being poured out as a drink offering, and that is coming on top of their faith and obedience, which is the sacrificial offering. And there's some Old Testament connections here that we'll talk about here in a second. Now, their offering is the same kind of living sacrifice offering that the author of Hebrews appeals to. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. The church of Philippi, they knew that their life and conduct was their sacrificial offering to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, there's only three places that talk about the drink offering, but the drink offering was something that was offered in the promised land, not when they were wandering, 
not when they were wandering in the wilderness. It was offered in the promised land. It was poured over the sacrifice. Now in the New Testament, the way of sacrificial, obedient living is a way to offer a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. I'm not talking about a sacrifice to appease the Lord. Only Christ's life, death, and resurrection appeases God's wrath. But how we live as a living sacrifice, we are wanting to live in a way that pleases God. Not appeases Him. Not in a way that satisfies His wrath. That is completely satisfied because of what Christ has done and what Christ has done alone. But we offer our lives as a living sacrifice because we want to please our Heavenly Father. Now there's a commentator that said this. God punished the Israelites by leading them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That's Numbers 13 and 14 where specifically that is spoken about. Immediately after this defeat, God gave Moses instructions on the drink offering. Okay, let's hear this. In the context, the drink offering is a promise of eventual victory and settlement in the land, and it is a sign of God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel. Now, Paul's work and what he is appealing to them to work towards, Paul's labor was offered up to God as a drink for God, as wine to make his heart glad. But as is appropriate to a better covenant, it's not only the Lord who drinks the wine of joy, but also the people. Hence, Paul says that he shares the joy of being an offering with the Philippians and asks them to respond by pouring their offering upon him. Okay, what does all this mean? When we live obedient, sacrificial lives, Pouring out as a drink offering our life, living as a living sacrifice, the Father is not appeased, but the Father is pleased. And there is rejoicing with God's people and with the one who is obeying his or her heavenly Father. Paul says, I am glad and rejoice with you. Now, there is joy in being poured out as a living sacrifice. There is joy in living a life of sacrifice to others. Look at verse 18. Likewise, you should also be you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay. In light of the joy of sacrificial living, let's all be filled with joy. Let's all of us be filled with joy. Okay, here's a simple reality. If you live for yourself first, that's the world. That's how the world lives. The crooked and twisted generation lives for themselves first. You will rob yourself of joy. Joy does not come through asking and demanding everybody else to sacrifice for you, to bow down to you, to bend around your desires or preferences. That's not where joy is found. Joy is not found as in living as, as if you are the king or, king or the queen of the universe. The goal of life is not to get everyone else to agree with you and bend to your expectations. That's not where joy is found. When we live sacrificial life, my life for your life. 
we live as if you are first, and what Paul has been calling this church to live for, counting others more significant than ourselves, when we live that way, there is joy all the way around. There's joy for the people we're sacrificing for, and there's joy for you. When we focus on other people and say, I'm going to live in such a way, and I'm going to demonstrate the salvation that's inside of me in such a way that you're going to flourish, that you're going to find life. I'm going to lay down my preferences for your preference. There's joy found. The world knows nothing of this kind of thing. If you live for the good of others, you get joy. There's joy there for you. When we stop demanding everyone else bend to our expectations, and we willingly say, I'm going to sacrifice for you, there's joy all the way around. That's what Jesus did, is it not? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. It's a remarkable, remarkable passage. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith? Jesus. We are not the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus saw joy that was on the other side of sacrifice. For the joy set before him endured, ran with endurance, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He sacrificed himself for real people. My life for yours. I'm coming to die for you. I'm going to die for real people with real names. And my blood is going to be spilled to actually buy them. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to attempt to just make a way for people to be saved, I'm actually going to save sinners. I am the way. I'm not just a way. And Jesus came and He actually sacrificed. If you know Jesus here this morning, He is the one who demonstrated this. Who came to actually sacrifice and substitute His life for yours. Joy was His reward. Do you know about that sacrifice personally? Do you know Him? Do you know that He died in the place of real sinners? By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, have you repented of your sins and trusted in Him? He won't turn you away. He won't turn you away. If you'll come to Him, and bow your knee to Him and pull on He'll have you. He'll have you. But when we know that sacrifice, what Christ has done for us, when we know that He died in my place for my sins, He lived a perfect life in my place, He obeyed God's law perfectly in my place. And He came and died the death I should have died. When the Holy Spirit shows you the beauty of that, fresh and new, Day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out. How then can we go on living for ourselves? How can we hide it under a bush? Or a bushel? See, I messed up again. How can we hide it under a bushel? 
Why would we keep grumbling and complaining? Why would we not go hard after the Lord Jesus Christ, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and then know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's God who's at work within us, but the will and the work for His good pleasure and praise Him for it. And we know what He has done for us. It changes everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy. I thank You that there's joy in sacrificial living. There's joy in sacrifice. I thank You for what You have done for us. But we could not do for ourselves. We were lost in sin. We were the ones hiding. We were the ones running. We were the ones in rebellion. We were the ones dead in trespasses and sins. We were the ones in bondage. And Jesus, you came to set us free. You set us free. Holy Spirit, you indwell us. We want to, in every aspect of our lives, we want to live for you and honor you, pursue you, pursue wisdom. We want to live for the good of others and help me in this. Destroy pride. Sinful pride, destroy it. God, I pray you feel thankless in this room for the sacrifice of Jesus. He came to give his life for ours. Does anybody here that doesn't know that they have sinned against you? I pray you open their eyes to see their sin. That's the way they would run to Jesus this morning. Holy Spirit. You're always working perfectly through imperfect preaching. I trust that you'll do that right now this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.